Hello, welcome to the Rounds Table. Thank you for joining us this week, listeners. I just wanted to thank all the listeners for a great first few months. Uh, this is our last episode before we take a two-week break for Christmas. And then we'll be back in the New Year's with a new, designed, ready-to-go, polished The Rounds Table to kick us off for the 2017 year. We have a great show for you and a very, very special guest and a good friend of mine. His name is Dr. Michael Freilich. He's a general internist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. But currently, he's completing a master's in clinical epidemiology and a research fellowship in the Program on Regulation, Therapeutics, and Law in the Division of Pharmacoepidemiology and Pharmacoeconomics at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. He joins us tonight from lovely Boston. Dr. Freilich, nice to have you on the show. Oh, thanks, Karen. I appreciate you having me. Okay, well, let's get into it. Why don't you introduce your article and then uh, and then we'll take us through it. So the article that I'm going to be talking about was published in JAMA Internal Medicine on October 3rd, 2016 by Dr. Graham et al. And the title of the article was Stroke, Bleeding, and Mortality Risks in Elderly Medicare Beneficiaries Treated with Dibigatran or Rivaroxaban for Non-Valvular Atrial Fibrillation. That's a mouthful. What was the bottom line for this article, Mike? So the bottom line is that this was an observational study of over 100,000 patients who newly initiated dabigatran or rivaroxaban for atrial fibrillation. And the two medications had similar effectiveness, maybe a lower risk of stroke with rivaroxaban. But what was clear from this study was that rivaroxaban use was associated with an increased risk of bleeding compared to dabigatran. Okay, well, that sounds like something we should hear more about when these new uh, anticoagulants. Mike, why is this article important and why did you choose it? This article is important because it asks a question that I know I struggle with as an internist and I'm sure family physicians, eMERGE doctors and other physicians do as well. And the tricky part here is that when a new medication gets approved by the FDA, that new uh, medication is generally compared against standard of care or sometimes placebo, but almost never will you see the makers of Dabigatran, for example, compare their medication to rivaroxaban or apixaban. There's no reason why they need to do that from a regulatory standpoint. So these types of questions often will not be answered by a randomized trial, and thus we're left with observational studies to attempt to answer these really clinically important questions. Yeah, and, when, and I find it uh, always fascinating that we're in this age now of large data sets that we can help to answer these questions. So uh, how about you take us through the study and how they sought to get around this lack of RCT data? As mentioned, this was a large uh, observational retrospective study, and it included patients enrolled in Medicare in the U.S. with atrial fibrillation who were newly starting rivaroxaban or dabigatran between 2011 and 2014. They used what's called a new user design. So remember that it's not as if these patients started on warfarin and switched to rivaroxaban. These patients essentially weren't on anything before, and they're completely new users. This just allows for a, a greater degree of homogeneity. So Mike, what was the primary research question that they were asking? The research question was quite simple. Which is safer and more effective? Rivaroxaban or dabigatran? And they defined safety as intracranial hemorrhage or GI bleed, things we see clinically and things that are robustly captured. And they defined effectiveness as risk of stroke and mortality. And they also had some secondary endpoints. Now, Mike, so who did they include in this uh, study? The patients had to be over the age of 65, and they had to have a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. And again, they had to be newly starting uh, one of these two medications. They could not have been on one of these medications or 
different oral anticoagulant prior to the study uh, starting. Uh, what were some of the key exclusion criteria that they had if it was just an AFib cohort? They excluded individuals that had less than six months of enrollment, and enrollment is a foreign concept for our Canadian listeners, since if you're Canadian, you just have access to healthcare. But in the US for Medicare, the way it works is that that happens after the age of 65 as a general rule. So you want to wait until people have enrollment for at least six months. Otherwise, you can't find out any baseline information about them. Um, again, as you can guess, past a NOAC or DOAC use, past warfarin use, people who had a DVT, a PE, specific types of valve disease, and people who resided in a nursing home or a hospice were not included in this study. So Mike, what you know, we see a lot of patients who stop medications. What happened in this study if their cohorts stopped the medication, like the rivaroxaban or dabigatran? If they stopped the medication, those people were censored, which means their results were not included in the analysis. Now, if they stopped the medication because they had a massive bleed, for example, that data would be recorded. But if people just stopped taking the medication for more than three days, was their cutoff, that information wouldn't be uh, included. Other groups that were censored is if they switched to a different anticoagulant or if they started on dialysis or were admitted into a nursing home. What were the primary findings? What did, what did it all come boiling out to be? patients on dabigatran or the patients on rivaroxaban, they looked very similar, even after you did any fancy adjustment. So your typical patient here, 90% were between the ages of 65 and 85, about half were male, most had high blood pressure, half had coronary artery disease, a third had diabetes, and 90% had a CHAD score of three or less. So that's just giving us a sense of who was included. And the groups were very well balanced. They took it one step further, and they used a method that involves propensity scores as simply as possible, is that when we as physicians prescribe a medication, we're prescribing it based on information we have available to us. Maybe we're giving rivaroxaban to one patient and to bigotran to another patient for very good clinical reasons. So what propensity scores attempt to do is to try to take into account that information for why they got the medication they got, the propensity that they got the medication uh, that it was selected for that individual. And it adjusts for these various imbalances or variables that are different between the two groups. Okay. And then what did they end up finding after they did this fancy adjustments and balancing? What they found was that there was a lower stroke risk for individuals on rivaroxaban in terms of relative numbers, about a 20% reduced risk of stroke if you're on rivaroxaban compared to dabigatran. In terms of absolute numbers, it essentially equated to 10 people having a stroke out of 1,000 if they were on dabigatran versus 8 per 1,000 if they were on rivaroxaban. But I'll mention right now that these results were not statistically significant, but just because they're not statistically significant doesn't mean they're not important. So a much clearer message that came out of this study was that there was a higher risk of bleeding with rivaroxaban specifically a higher risk of intracranial hemorrhage. So in terms of a relative increase, about 65% higher risk with rivaroxaban. And the absolute increase is about two and a half additional intracranial hemorrhages with rivaroxaban per thousand person years compared to dabigatran. And for GI bleeding, about a 40% relative increased risk compared to dabigatran. So a trend towards uh, better efficacy with rivaroxaban 
but definitely a safety concern with the use of rivaroxaban when it comes to bleeding. I agree. That's a much more succinct way of putting it. Any interesting points or secondary endpoints you wanted to raise? Yeah, so I think when you actually look at the Kaplan-Meier curves, they tell you a very good picture about what's going on. And what you'll see if you look at the actual articles is that the risk of bleeding, it happened within 30 to 60 days is when the initial risk occurred. And that's what we see clinically. The highest risk time period for patients to bleed is soon after they start the medication. And if you make it past the 30, 60 day time point, you will still see an increased risk, but that's sort of your highest risk initial period. The only other secondary endpoint is that when they looked at other types of bleeding, they still saw an increased risk. And some people uh, have proposed about whether or not rivaroxaban or dabigatran might decrease your risk of MI or increase it. And really, they saw um, a non-significant decreased risk of MI with rivaroxaban. Thank you for taking us through the Kaplan-Meier curves. Give us your take on the strengths and the weaknesses. We'll summarize it all about the, the methodology. What do you think? Uh, some of the obvious strengths are the sample size. We will all agree that a randomized controlled trial is probably the best way to answer a question about efficacy, whether or not something works. But when it comes to safety, randomized trials are limited in sample size and duration of follow-up. And this is really a, a nice area where cohort studies can step in and provide information that a randomized trial just won't tell us. So the sample size is impressive. The degree of follow-up is impressive. The duration of follow-up is impressive. And for people who are not overly stats-minded or research-focused, if there's two things you can remember to look for in these cohort studies, one is applying the new user design, which they've done. And the second thing to look for is some means of adjusting baseline confounders or covariates, whether that be propensity score matching or some other technique. And if I can slip in one last strength, the outcome definitions were really strong. So coding for an intracranial hemorrhage or a GI bleed, these are well-validated codes. And I think it's something that we can believe in terms of the strength of the codes to identify bleeding. Yeah, there's no misascertainment when it comes to that. Any concerns about you know, limitations of the study? There are definitely a few limitations. And I think the limitation that gets slapped on every cohort study is, oh, well, there's unmeasured confounding. And I agree that's true, but you got to take it one step further than that. Just because there's unmeasured confounding doesn't mean the results aren't credible. You have to say not only there's unmeasured confounding, but that it's differential between the two groups. So I do wonder about differential unmeasured confounding here. Specifically, if you look at a lot of the other studies, everything else seems to suggest that dabigatran has a higher risk of harm compared to rivaroxaban. And I wonder if there's a possibility that some of these patients might have been tried on dabigatran earlier and didn't tolerate that, maybe not to the point that they sought medical attention, maybe they had worsening bruising, maybe they had really bad GI upset and they switched, and maybe they switched to rivaroxaban, and intrinsically these people are now at higher risk. And this dovetails in with another limitation. So obviously I said that the way that this study worked is you couldn't be on anything beforehand, should that be dabigatran, rivaroxaban, or whatever, but this is a limitation of all U.S. studies. Since people might enter Medicare at age 65, they might change from one insurance company to another insurance company as time goes on, we don't know a lot about the people years before any bad event happened. 
So maybe they got into Medicare at age 65, and while they were in Medicare, they never tried dabigatran or rivaroxaban, so they would be a new user. But I don't know if when they were 64 years old, if they were on something else and didn't tolerate it. So I do wonder if that's an, uh, an unmeasured confounder here. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And, you know, this study was between 2011 and 2014. So there was some experience with dabigatran and concerns that had come out. And maybe, you know, the, the shift towards use of ribaroxaban uh, in some patients who are thought to be not appropriate for dabigatran or the physicians didn't want to use dabigatran at that time can affect those results as well. So, so Mike, you've described to us who the typical patient is. Is it one that you would see in your GIM clinic or in the emergency room? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just last week, there was a patient in hospital that I was looking after, and we were having this exact conversation. And the question was about, should they start drug X, Y, or Z? Um, so I think this is a common question that comes up for internists, family docs, and eMERGE physicians. So with all that in mind, uh, does this change your practice? I think I've become more open-minded to dabigatran, and I've definitely said I will never prescribe dabigatran. This makes me pause and think, wait a sec, am I actually grounded in believing that I'm not going to start handing out dabigatran to the patients I see, nor will I buy stock in the makers of dabigatran, or any medication for that matter, but I think at least I'm a little bit more open-minded, and I'm really curious to see if these results can be repeated. So I do wonder if some of these findings might be because rivaroxaban is a once-a-day medication, and people are more likely to take things that are once a day compared to dabigatran that's twice a day, but who knows? Well, thank you, Mike. That was a great article. I'm going to move on now and take you through my article for the week. So it's entitled Association of Frailty and One-Year Postoperative Mortality Following Major Elective Non-Cardiac Surgery, a population-based cohort study by Dr. McIsaac, and it was published in JAMA Surgery in June of 2016. What made you want to pick this article? So frailty is an interesting concept, and it's increasingly recognized as an important clinical phenotype. And what it, what it is, is that it reflects an accumulation of deficits. And that accumulation of deficits impacts on one's function, mobility, or cognition. And all of that together places that have an increased risk of disability and death from even minor external stressors. So frailty is this idea that it, it brings a whole bunch of different things about someone's life and health and, uh, and how that impacts their overall well-being. Now, single-center studies exist on short-term outcomes in the effect that frailty might have on surgical outcomes, but we really don't have any long-term or population-level impacts of someone's frailty status following surgery, including if the proposed increased risk in a frail individual is due to something other unmeasured factor. So this study really sought out to measure and quantify this. What's the bottom line of the article? This is a retrospective cohort study that was conducted in Ontario. Um, again, this is big data week. So we're talking about 200,000 individuals in this study that are aged 65 years or older. And it found that frailty was associated with increased mortality at one year after major non-cardiac surgery. If you adjusted for socioeconomic and sociodemographic factors, as well as other surgical confounders, the risk of death at one year was roughly 2.2 times higher in people with frailty. So it, it is the actual frailty itself that seems to be putting these people at increased risk. How did they go about designing the study and answering this question? Similar to your study, they did a retrospective look back at the major administrative data sets that are in Ontario. And they took 
community dwelling adults who are aged 65 or older, not including those who reside in a long-term care facility. And they examined those individuals who underwent major non-cardiac surgery. Um, And that major non-cardiac surgery is considered to be intermediate or high risk. So some examples of that would be a total knee or total hip arthroplasty, a carotid endarctectomy, some sort of major GI surgery, you know, an esophagectomy, a gastrectomy, or large bowel surgery, a Whipple's procedure, nephrectomy, you know, peripheral arterial bypass, these types of big surgeries that they're doing. And what was their primary research question? The primary outcome was to look at mortality within one year following the surgery. And they also kind of split that secondarily into whether that was an in-hospital death or an out-of-hospital death. And then they measured a host of comorbidities, but didn't actually adjust for those because frailty encompasses those things. Those things are a causal path for frailty, so you can't really take them out of the equation. But they did adjust for age, sex, and socioeconomic status and the year that the surgery was done. And then they had some secondary, absolute, and surgery-specific mortality rates. Okay. And uh, who are the main people that were included in this study? The exposure, which ends up being sort of who is included, is whether a patient or an individual was frail or not. For physicians who are not familiar with the concept of frailty, you might recognize frailty in your daily practice as medical complexity, so a patient with three or more chronic conditions, a patient with dementia or severe underlying cognitive impairment, or a patient who presents with what used to be called geriatric syndromes, things like falls, delirium, etc. And then they measured frailty by this frailty index using the Johns Hopkins Adjusted Clinical Groups. So this is a cluster of 12 frailty-defining diagnoses, which are the domains of malnutrition, dementia, impaired vision, decubitus ulcers, urinary incontinence, weight loss, poverty, barriers to access of care, difficulty in walking, abnormality of gait, and falls. So really kind of core functional uh, impairments that define frailty in this setting. In this case, we're looking at you know, individuals who are over the age of 65 where frailty prevalence starts to rise rapidly and you know, more and more of these pe- people are frail. Really, we're getting at the question of what is the role of surgery in some of these individuals And more importantly, does frailty inform our risk estimation in these individuals beyond our traditional surgical risk factors like the revised cardiac uh, risk index? Any key exclusion criteria to bring up? So as I mentioned, I think all that really matters to know about is that it's people who are not in long-term care facilities. So it's really just about community-dwelling elderly individuals. Right. And it was elective procedures. Is that correct? Not like a urgent hip replacement, for example? Yes, Mike, thank you for clarifying that. Absolutely. This is non-emergent, purely elective surgery. Of the people that were included, what did this population look like? Yeah, so your typical patient is a community-dwelling adult who's about, you know, 75 years old, maybe more likely to be a female, 60% of them, uh, mostly living in the in urban neighborhoods. And they had a a range of comorbidities. Hypertension, you know, as you would expect, would be most common. And the the more frail individuals had more common rates of malignancy, peripheral vascular disease, diabetes, COPD, uh, all in the sort of 20 to 30% range for some of these comorbidities. Um, And then they were more likely to undergo a hip or a knee replacement or potentially a large bowel procedure than some of the other ones that I mentioned. Okay. So what were the main uh, findings of the study? 
Of the 200,000 individuals who underwent surgery, about 3% of them were classified as frail. In the year after surgery, about 850, or 13%, of the frail patients, compared with about 9,400, or 5% of the non-frail patients, died. And that corresponded to an adjusted hazard ratio of 2.2. Now, interestingly, that risk was even more magnified in the first three days postoperatively. So there was a hazard ratio of 36 if you were frail in the first three days of dying. Hip and knee replacements were associated with the highest risk of dying postoperatively if one was frail compared to not frail. Yeah, I found that disheartening because we always talk about how important it is. I mean, it's different when people walk through or they emerge with a hip fracture, but that is so crucially important to fix a hip fracture and do it quickly. But then for a total elective hip replacement, I was just surprised by that finding. No, I, I, I found that very surprising. Here's another surprising thing. They seem to do risk, even what I would consider riskier surgeries on frail people than non-frail people. And, you know, I can't quite tease out if the reason they're frail is due to the underlying condition that required the surgery, like they had some sort of colon malignancy. Yeah, I completely agree. And I wonder if there might be an element of miscoding of some of the surgeries potentially, because that just didn't make sense to me either. Um, I was very surprised to see um, a lot of those as elective procedures for people who are clearly frail, but who knows. Yeah, and I mean, that's the problem that we don't know actually why the procedures were done. Uh, we just know what the procedure was. So Yeah, completely. Okay, awesome. So any like really interesting points that also jumped out that we haven't discussed thus far? Yeah, there, there's two, really two points that I wanted just to, to tell you about. You know, we, we've measured this concept of frailty in this study, but we didn't actually compare it to our traditional comorbidity measures like our Charleston comorbidity score. Does frailty really add an additional component to our overall understanding of, of surgical risk? Or, you know, or even using, you know, some of our more traditional surgical risk scores in this study would have been interesting to compare that to the frailty scores that they used. And the other point I wanted to make was, so in research, we're, we're a little bit bound by sort of dichotomous categorization. So is somebody frail or not? But it doesn't actually work like that. And I'm spending some time in Halifax where frailty is sort of the bedrock of uh, and was developed here, the idea of it. And frailty is a spectrum. You can have severely frail individuals and less frail individuals or not frail individuals, but to sort of call it one versus the other is a fairly artificial and arbitrary way to classify your individuals. Yeah, I completely agree. When I think of frailty, I don't think of someone who's really frail. I don't think of them as being able to be enrolled in a clinical trial and come to multiple visits and etc. So I, I completely agree that the definition is somewhat uh, arbitrary. That sounds like a potential limitation. Um, any other limitations of the study? There's the typical criticism that we already talked about in your study with if the patients aren't the same at the baseline, and these certainly were not, you need to do some adjustment to try to balance them. And they did that in an interesting way in this study, but I really think that there's some question marks about what was happening between the two surgical cohorts of frail versus non-frail, and there's some serious differences that would exist between those individuals that aren't captured here. You don't necessarily want to be adjusting for certain of those covariates that define frailty, because then 
we might actually lose out on what the true effects are. So it's tricky for sure. And does this change what you're already doing? Was the finding of this study surprising to you? I, I hope it wouldn't really be surprising to many people because if you're frail and you're pre-morbid state, is it going to affect your surgical outcomes? Absolutely. I think we all kind of knew that. What I'm really interested to know and what I think the balance of the strengths and weaknesses of this study is that it's, it's thought-provoking to show this association between frailty and death at a population level. But I think really what we need to understand moving forward is the additional risk that is added or information that is added into surgical decision making when you frame it in the context of frailty. And so, you know, is this going to change my practice currently? No, because I'm already concerned about people who are frail or with pre-morbid states. But I, I hope that it should raise some questions about future research that maybe I might be able to do as well. So It's really easy to define patients by their age. But I think this is a nice example of why that's often not the right thing to do. It's kind of nice that this wasn't just a study of how did people over X age do. No, no, no. It was about how did individuals who were frail, not about being 90 or 80, but instead being about the degree of frailty. So I like that because I think we need to move away from making decisions based on people's age and instead uh, look at a much bigger picture. And I think frailty informs a lot of that picture. Well, Mike, thank you so much. Let's move on to my favorite part of the show. Now, it's the good stuff segment. Um, and it's where we're talking about what we are reading about. Mike, what is catching your attention this week? What's catching my attention is this Juno oncology story. Uh, I don't know if you've been following this, but essentially this is a U.S.-based uh, oncology pharmaceutical company, and they designed this trial called the Rocket Trial. Okay, like it sounds like, ooh, that sounds exciting. And the goal was immunotherapy for patients who have ALL. They started this study, and soon after the study was started, and this is phase one, three patients died. So that's extremely alarming. And the FDA initiated what's called a clinical hold. So what a clinical hold is, is the FDA says, okay, timeout, stop whatever you're doing. We need to take a close look at this. And then a week later, they said, we're going to lift the clinical hold. You guys can continue. No one knows how they made that decision, why they made that decision, and what goes into that decision, which is quite alarming. So anyway, so the trial continues and more people get enrolled into the study. Remember, a phase one study to see if it's a safe medication. 12 more patients enter the study and then two more people die and they die of cerebral edema. So this is quite alarming for a couple reasons. I think one is who decides when it's safe to restart a trial and is it the FDA who should be deciding that? Should they be letting other people know about why this decision was made? So it just sort of made me feel just generally uncomfortable. And it goes along with some new state laws called right to try. So these right to try laws encourage patients to seek access to experimental drugs outside of the clinical trial framework. And I just think that's an extremely dangerous and slippery slope to go down. And anyway, an interesting story that really caught my eye. Yeah, complicated ethics that come into the modern world of clinical research. Thanks, Mike. So uh, I came across an interesting article. And so you are probably more aware of this than me because you're living it. At the time of recording this episode, it's it just past American Thanksgiving. 
And there are a lot of football games, both college and NFL games, that happen on the Thanksgiving weekend in the United States. And football is life, some would say. Uh, so much so that the emergency rooms across the United States experience huge spikes in football-related injuries on Thanksgiving weekend as dad takes, you know, the little girls or little boys out to play football in the backyard and mom gets involved and who knows, somebody ends up getting hurt. And, and so I thought it was kind of interesting just to see how patterns of health are affected by patterns of life. And in this case, football being life. Anyways, thank you, Mike. It was a great show. I really appreciated all of your insight. And for those of you who don't know, Mike is also an all-star goalie, maybe the Eddie Belfour of the hockey rink in Boston these days. So keep an eye out for Eddie the Eagle on the ice, also known as Mike Freilich. Yeah, right. I think I just have like the temperament of Ed Balfour, but n none of the skills, but I, I appreciate it no less. All right. Well, we hope you come back and join us soon, Mike. Thanks so much. For sure. Thanks, Kieran. You, you've done an excellent job uh, with the podcast and it's yeah, been a pleasure to uh, take part in this episode. I appreciate it. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash the rounds table. Follow us on Twitter at rounds table or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week.